I'm honored and excited to announce that I want to know has their first sponsors. First, Dr. James McIntyre and his team at Adjust Your Health in North Calgary. When I met Dr. James almost 20 years ago, I was taking a bucket load of Advil every week just to get through my day, like 16 to 20 a day. Not to mention the alcohol and other substances I would take at night so that I could sleep. I suffered from chronic back pain due to car accidents, sports injuries, and repetitive motion damage from being uh, in the drywall industry. I worked in the trades for nearly 20 years, had more than 10 car accidents, three very serious ones, and some severe sports-related injuries. Most of the chiros I saw could only give me temporary relief. I was, uh, it was getting expensive and very depressing to know that I would see some of these chiros and only get temporary relief, but wake up the next morning in pain. I was lucky that the last chiro I saw said she couldn't help me and directed me to Dr. James McIntyre. After only a few visits, I felt tremendously better. Most of my pain had left, my mobility was coming back, and I didn't need as much Advil. If I remember right, it was only a few months, and I was almost completely off the pills. Life was getting better. I've known Dr. James and his crew for almost 18 years. I've referred almost everyone I know to him, and they have become Adjust Your Health advocates. The team at Adjust Your Health offers a wide array of services, including acupuncture, massage therapy, chiropractic, and physiotherapy. They believe in a multidisciplinary approach to patient care and use a variety of techniques to help the patient achieve their goals, from pain relief or injury resolution to improving sports performance. Calgary is very privileged to have such a highly qualified team of practitioners available to accommodate your health and well-being needs. If you are in pain or an athlete or just want to be as healthy as possible, check them out at www.com. A-Y-H-Calgary.com. Our next sponsor is Paul Nye, an amazing artist out of Verdre, Alberta. I've admired his artwork for years. He's been mostly doing airbrush work to customize motorbikes, cars, boats, hard hats, and signs. The work is stunning to see. You can get all your custom work done with Paul at Reaper Creations at 3700 McCool Street, Crossfield, Alberta, just a half hour north of Calgary. That's not all. I don't want to take the light away from his airbrushing, but his tattoos are out of this world. His ability to bring tattoos to life with shading and color will astound you. The skill set he has as an airbrush artist transferred seamlessly to tattooing. You can get your next tattoo with Paul at Shell Shock Tattoo and Piercings at 920 36th Street, Northeast Calgary. We have featured some of his art on our YouTube video, and we have had him on the podcast. Paul is second to none as an artist and a person. You can also check out his art at Nice Tats or Nice Touch on Facebook and Instagram. And now, on with the show. I want to know podcast with Chad Ferguson. Hey everybody, this is Chad with the I Want to Know podcast, a kick-ass podcast. Uh, we're here today with uh, another comic. We seem to be landing comics <laughs> like crazy. You're here with Austin Lonenberg. Lonenberg? Lonenberg. Lonenberg. I told you I'd mess it up. Yeah, everyone knows. <laughs> Lonenberg, uh, you're a Calgary uh, comedian. Yep. Been doing it for seven years. Yeah, yeah, a little while. Is that all you do? No, no. I also I have a day job as well. Oh, okay. Yeah. How, uh, how'd you get into comedy? I just liked it podcasts to be honest like okay. in like high school and stuff uh 
I don't know how it started. I think I was just like couldn't fall asleep one night, and then I was you know browsing around on iTunes or whatever. Yeah, and it wasn't like I had any money in my account and podcasts for free. So I was like, <laughs> I'll check these out, whatever. Yeah, it's highest rated. So I downloaded like one of like um, the Nerdist podcast, and like maybe a, the Nerdist is excellent with Chad Hardwick, Chris Hardwick, yeah, Chris yeah, Hardwick, yeah. 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 Uh, one of his like re- like maybe like episode nine or something. Oh like wow, re- real. And then I think maybe like a Joe Rogan episode. That was like episode like it was like real early. Like it was like. Yeah. Episode like 16 or something. Nice. Yeah. 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 So then I uh, listened to those and they were all done by comedians, right? So yeah. it was one of those things where they talked about it and kind of, I always liked comedy. Yeah. And then that was just like, oh, there's like, you know, it sort of made it seem more attainable when you hear that there's like real people behind it, you know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. When you hear who they are as a person. Or yeah, exactly. The comic kind of thing. hundred uh, percent. Yeah. That's actually what got me started listening to podcasts as well. I had a buddy and I don't do comedy yet. I've started writing, <laughs> but I haven't been brave enough to go try yeah. it on stage yet. Um, but uh, yeah, I was listening to podcasts and they're just, they're, especially the Rogan podcasts are so deep into the, what their methods are and what they're trying to achieve and how they get there. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, I could try this. And then the podcast was just the podcast. Like I just, I enjoyed everything they did. I think I learned best this way. Yeah. So I just want to meet as many people as I can and learn your style and you know what I mean? Yeah, totally. Cool, cool. So where where did you start in Calgary? Uh, there's a bar called Broken City and they yeah. were on a comedy Monday night, which is I don't, like, I don't know if you've ever been, but it's pretty... Yeah, I want to say it's been around for almost 15 years now. So I heard it's, it's the... So Jason Fredrickson, what we talked about before the show, mm-hmm. said it's the longest-running amateur comedy show in Canada. Yeah, I believe that's true. It's like the longest-running... I don't even know if just amateur, but any out of any bar gigs, I think it's the longest-running show in a bar in Canada. Wow. I don't think there's... There used to be another one out in Toronto, but it finally went away. Yeah. Um, I think the lady who ran it passed away, unfortunately, but it you know that happens, and that one was going on for over 10 years as well. So it's wow. not like they didn't. <laughs> That's where I think I'm going to, um, what do they call cut your teeth? I need yeah. to go give it a go there one night. I heard you get five minutes and I probably have two and a half minutes right now. Yeah. <laughs> I would say like, don't worry. You'll, if you go there on any other night, like just to check out the show. Cause I think the guy that runs it wants you to do that anyway. Okay. Um, James Moore is his name, but, um, You'll go there every week. I believe they have two newcomers pretty okay. much across the board. And you'll see like guys doing their first sets. And you'll see, like, oh, you don't really need five minutes to do five minutes. Like, you'll, <laughs> you know, it'll, it'll be this thing where you're like, it, you don't have to nail it your first time. Yeah, right? yeah. Kind of thing. They're pretty gracious. Yeah, exactly. And the audiences there are really nice. Like, very, very polite. Very cool. Yeah. So do you still do Broken City every once in a yeah, while? Yeah, just up there last Monday. They had, like, um, it was called like the Bright Lights Comedy Show. It was like a Calgary local comedian showcase kind of thing. I was on there. And cool. Yeah, so I do it quite a bit. It's it's one of the best best rooms in town. Yeah. Kind of thing. Yeah. So what's your process with comedy? Like, if do you have a full hour? Do you like what is kind of your gig? Um. Well, I have like I just did last Wednesday. I did forty five minutes for the first time, which is like the tip in a club that's typically about the headlining yeah. set length. Um. Up in Grand Prairie, me and my friend went up. We split head, co headlined it for the first time. So very cool. And I wasn't sure how. Like, I knew I had 45 minutes at least, but I wasn't sure if that was going to be, if I had to say every single joke I ever wrote, <laughs> yeah. or if I'd have some left. And I, at the end of the 45 minutes, I was like, oh, I have, like, a little, at least a little bit left over. Nice. So I'm probably closing on an hour, but it's not, that wouldn't be a whole hour of jokes I'm proud of. That okay. Would be, I mean, like, maybe 25 to 30 minutes of jokes in there that I'd stand by. Yeah, yeah. And another 15 minutes of, like, kind of crap I wrote in my first... <laughs> few yeah. years of comedy that just trying to work them out uh, or you think they're just they're not going to get better I'm, they might like i don't know if the premises are bad but they're just things i wrote when i was like maybe in the first two or three years of my yeah. you know doing stand-up yeah and that stuff is like it's just not as good as what i'm writing now you know yeah. and that happens 
Oh, absolutely. You do yeah. better at stuff. So it's, it's a good sign, but it's also one of those things where I'm like, I wouldn't, I would never want to record those in their current states or anything. Yeah, you know, yeah. If I did an album or whatnot. That's what I'm amazed with the comics. So I think you're the third or fourth comic we've had on here. And you guys probably have the thickest skin out of anyone I've ever met in my life. Like you guys have this ability to go up on stage and know something is going to just suck. And try it anyways, mm-hmm. and let the crowd go silent or boo you or you know whatever the negative feedback you're going to get. You guys just take it like a champ, like right on the chin, and like <laughs> it doesn't seem to bother comics at all. Yeah, well, you kind of have to. I mean, there's some shows like I did a show on Friday night, and like before the show, there's some of the people were just so way too drunk, like kind of ruined the show for everybody. Yeah, and I mean, maybe there's like 70 people there. Um, and it was a late show, so it's a 10 p.m. show, and these people showed up at 9 when they're f- switching the room. So every comedy club with two shows, yeah. there's probably a half an hour between when the first show ends and the second show is a half an hour before it starts where they have to, like, you know, clean all the dishes or whatever, so they can't let people in. So they come in, there's a bar attached, and, like, there's so... This one lady's already, like, she goes behind the bar. Yeah. Like, it's, you're just like, <laughs> oh, this is a disaster. You're crazy. Like, there's feral humans, and yeah, then yeah. Um, they... Uh, there's a yeah. joke in there somewhere. Yeah, I'm right sure. <laughs> but they were, like... In the show, and then like during the whole MC, so he's doing you know ten minutes off the top or whatever. Yeah. And this lady's just yelling wah wah after everything, like oh. just like. And they, this particular venue, they don't really kick people out. Like oh, okay. they don't, they're not great about policing the room. And it was just one of those things where go, before I went up there, and maybe I should have had a better attitude about it. But I was just like, oh, this is going to be bad. I know this isn't <laughs> going to go well. They're not going to want to listen to yeah yeah Danny. And sure enough, as soon as I start talking, like they can't make it through a setup. Like they can't get yeah. through a punchline without starting to go wow and i'm like oh jeez this is so you know it's gonna I, you know. I never understood that like i'm a huge comedy fan i have been mm-hmm. like since i was young like as soon as i could get into bars i was going to comedy bars and uh i didn't ever I never understood why you would pay you know 30 40 bucks to get into a show uh, or 50 60 bucks in some places just to make it crappy like why are you bashing you think you're funnier than somebody that does this for a living yeah i think that's part of it and i think Another thing is, you know, comedy clubs give out free tickets or they have like a deal on like Groupon or whatever. So somebody sees that and they're like, oh, that'll be a thing to do. And they don't, I think maybe in their mind, especially if it's like that situation where it's like a drinking situation, they think like, oh, it'll be more fun the more I drink. But they don't realize like you lose, you don't have an attention span if you're like at that point. You have no ability to like listen (laughs) for more than a second. You're you're obviously not a drinker at all, eh? I am, but it's like. Okay, but you're not, you don't get out of control like that. I try not to, but it's also like I wouldn't also go to a comedy show if I ever did. Like that wouldn't be the activity I try to do, you know? Yeah, exactly. Because it's not, you know, it's it's a passive activity. And if you're like right. at that level where you're like, oh, I need to be involved in whatever this is, it's not for you at that point, right? <laughs> exactly. I know there was a bunch of the higher-end comedians. Oh, here comes the dog. The first entrance. We're about to change the uh, the studio layout. Yeah. So we've got the dogs in the house and we're babysitting. Rascal, come here. You can come on the camera. See? You're not even going to look. So, yeah, we're, we're babysitting a dog and letting one in. So we may get interrupted every once in a while. Um, I don't remember what I was talking about now. I got distracted by the dog. <laughs> I remember. Um, yeah, I've been in comedy or going to comedy shows ever since I was young. And I just, I, I loved being part, or not being part of the show, just being there and listening. Yeah. And so getting loaded to show up for a comedy show just doesn't seem like fun at all. Yeah, I don't, it's not, I mean, it's not an activity I would do. And I hopefully mm-hmm. it's like one, it's a thing I would hope most people only do once, you know? Like yeah. they realize that wasn't like a great move and <laughs> yeah. they don't do it. But I got a buddy that I stopped taking him to shows. Um, he used to be our co-host on Here, Mark, and uh, he would literally just sit there. 
and stare at yeah. the guy. And even if they were funny, he just refused to laugh. I'm like, what are you doing? Like, yeah. It's funny. Just let him, let him be funny. Well, it is. I, I don't know, because it's rare, but occasionally, like, as a comedian, so if you're a comedian, you tend, like, you have build relationships with the comedy clubs in town, and they know you, and they'll let you watch a show from the back of the room for free or whatever. Yeah. But sometimes if there's, like, a bigger act in town, like, I want to buy tickets so that I can ensure if it fills up, you know, I don't have to... I'll be able to be in the room or whatever. Yeah. And it is weird because I go to so many comedy shows. It's, I'm not, I'm probably, I'm not a great laugher anymore. I don't know if I ever was or whatever. Okay. And I'm not like, I, I'll adopt that posture you just had with arms crossed or whatever. But it's, <laughs> yeah. I, I know there's like a real anxiety I've had where I've been sat in the front row of a comedy show yeah. as a comedian. One, I don't want them to ask what I do because I don't want to be like, oh, I'm also a comedian. Like it feels like a weird <laughs> yeah. Thing it's to like have a pissing contest all yeah not e- yeah I don't it just feels like they're like oh you, I don't know why but it yeah. feels like it'd be a weird a weird situation you know yeah. but then on top of that I'm also just so self conscious conscious of like appearing like I'm having fun like yeah, yeah. I like I'm like now I have to like force myself to, I have to perform I have to like have performative fun yeah yeah for the benefit of the act or whatever yeah, right? yeah. do you, uh, your act I haven't seen your act yet mm-hmm. um, and I plan on coming out but uh, is your act are you laughing or are you like uh, animated in your act at all not not too much um, okay. I'm trying to like maybe perform a little bit bigger but yeah I'm, I'm pretty pretty low energy yeah yeah that's uh, more British style like they're very uh, what's stoic almost on stage if yeah. they're telling jokes? Some of them. They have a the British comedy tradition is a little bit different than the North American tradition. It's much more tied to like theater. Yeah. Um so you will there is actually I would say some British acts are more performative in um in a much more theatrical way. Okay. Um and also like the way they structure their hours, they're not as beholden to laughs, I'd say. Like they they because they have this thing over there called the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. I don't know if you right. I heard, heard it, about yeah. it. Yeah. But a big part of that festival is reviews. Okay. Um, so like The Guardian or I think Chortle's a big one. Um, these publications in the UK, they go out and review. So there's kind of a an emphasis, and they review it as theater. So they there's an emphasis on making sort of a cohesive either narrative or statement or showing somebody grow from the beginning to the end of an hour or whatever. Right? Okay. Showing that as opposed to American stand-up, which is my my preferences, North American stand-up, I should say, where it's just more about jokes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and just, I don't know, and the emphasis tends to be more on, like, funny. Yeah. And there's not, if you watch even, like, the biggest American acts, you know, they don't have, like, a, their hours aren't themed in the same way for the most part. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. I was um, listening to one, and they were they were talking about the rhythm of some people's jokes. I think this was uh, Brian Callen, and and how they appreciate how each comic can have a different rhythm to their to their sets, mm-hmm. and they can change it in between and play with it. Like there's people that will do long, like forty five second or minute long stories to get to the to the joke. Yeah, and other people that it's like every twenty seconds there's got to be something funny in there. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I I often like because I have some jokes that have a longer punchline. It's kind of a lesson I had to learn in comedy, uh, not to get too into the weeds with it. But it's just like there's some jokes that need that silence at yeah. the time. Like it builds attention that releases. And if you try to be funny before the release, yeah, it undermines the larger punchline. So if you're like, oh, this is too much silence, you know, by making the audience wait thirty or forty seconds, maybe, yeah, for the punchline, you can like really undercut yourself. Okay. Yeah. So um, do you get that in your writing? Like, can you see that as you're writing or do you work that out on stage? It ends up being a thing I notice on stage. So okay. I won't necessarily notice it when I'm writing. Yeah. Like, and my writing process is pretty loose for the most part until later. But initially it's just like I have some ideas and I want to yeah. go say them. And then 
you'll notice, you'll be like, oh, there's a lot of setup for this. And then most times what you want to do is make that setup a little funny, but occasionally on jokes, you'll be like, oh, I tried to make the setup funny. And it actually yeah. made the, the main punch of the joke go from like a eight to a three or something, right? Yeah. you undermine that tension. Yeah, I think Chris Rock is probably one of the best at that because he does these like deep stories about divorce mm-hmm. or actually Jim Gaffigan. I don't know if you saw, not his latest um, uh, um, special, but the one before that when he talked about his wife with brain cancer and almost died. I haven't seen it, but I, yeah. Dude, like it gets so heavy, the story that he's telling, and then just boop, joke pops up and everyone's like bustling it, but you're almost crying before you start laughing for the joke, right? I think that that's a, um, I don't know, like a veteran's way. Like it seems like the the guys that are more advanced are like telling longer stories and and they're, like you said, they're waiting for the bigger punchline. Yeah, totally. And it's it's good because he has an audience. So it's not like if you're doing some random show, nobody knows you, you kind of have to show who you are to them. Like you have to, prove that you're a funny introduce person. yourself exactly first. Yeah. yeah and it's a it's a great thing especially when you're at that level where you can you can start to do things that are they're a little more not even experimental is not the right word but are the audience are they're more gracious with you so they're just willing to you yeah. know go along for a, a longer ride and maybe let it get heavier or whatever yeah before you you make it funny again because they they trust you there's already an established trust right? right and you know that's the reason eddie murphy quit stand-up um, he, so when he was kind of his peak, when he was doing like raw and delirious mm-hmm. and stuff like that, um, I just heard him talk about this on the, um, Jerry Seinfeld, um, comedy and cars doing coffee or whatever mm-hmm. it's called. And he was saying that, um, he was so big that he was, uh, would walk out on stage and no matter what he said he did, the whole audience would explode into laughter. Oh, okay. And so he's like, they're not even listening to my jokes. They're just here to see me and it doesn't matter what I do. And yeah. so... He said he lost the thrill for it because it wasn't like he was having to actually craft jokes and write. And he could go on, stair- on stage and say fart and everyone would explode into laughter. And he's like, well, that's not what I'm trying to do. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. Obviously, there was making money and getting big and, and being funny. Yeah. But it just turned into something that was ugly for him. And, and he may be back in the next year. Yeah, he just signed that deal, right? I think so, yeah. Well, and I know, I think there's like a Twilight Zone episode that's that. It's I oh, I don't know I've heard I've about that. it, but I don't know if I've seen it. But it's the the premise is that where it's okay. like somebody you know somebody wants to be a comedian and they become a comedian, but they laugh at every single thing they say. Like <laughs> yeah. they, you can't even make it through a sentence without like uproarious yeah. applause, right? So it, at that point, you know, because part of what's fun about doing jokes is it's like a bit of a puzzle. Yeah, you, know? you like um, craft this thing and then it comes together and then you get a laugh at the end. You figured something out, right? right. But if you didn't have to do that, like I don't know. Yeah. That would even be fun at that point. I think that's yeah exactly what he was getting at. Like there was no craft left in it. It was just that he was so big, everyone was just laughing at him. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I know he's like such a performer, and I know Chris Rock, who you yeah. mentioned earlier, does a thing with his new material where he doesn't perform it like Chris Rock. Okay. Because he knows that if he does the Chris Rock thing, people will laugh at him being Chris Rock, right? These right. mannerisms and stuff. But he says if you do, if you do that, you can't gauge the material. Yeah. So apparently, he goes up very monotone. Okay. And just sort of like speaks the jokes, um, just to like get a gauge of whether or not the words themselves are funny before he adds Chris Rock. So it's almost like he's trying to sabotage the joke mm-hmm. uh, just to see if he still gets a laugh. Yeah, exactly. And he's already made it, right? So there's no, there's no people aren't going to be like, oh, I won't have Chris Rock again because he had like a weird right, exactly. Saturday or whatever. Yeah. yeah. 
Weird. Who uh, Who are some of your favorites? What uh, Who inspire you? Especially locally, I guess, because you go and watch so many local shows. Yeah, um, locally, there's like, I mean, there's a group. We actually used to have a, a real big group of like funny amateur comics or younger comics. A lot of them moved away, but like Malik Lassel right now is like killing it. He's like another younger guy. Okay. Um, there's also like older guys in the scene. Like there's guys whose careers are like things that hopefully I could aspire to having one day. Like um, Pete Zedlacher is a local guy who's yeah, just yeah. had an amazing comedy career. Pete lives here? Yeah, he moved here maybe two years ago. So okay. He used to be from Toronto. Anyway, he used to live yeah. in Toronto and then he moved to Calgary okay. a couple of years ago. And it's like, it's cool to have, because we didn't really have, we might have had actually Trent McClellan's another guy who's very good locally, but there wasn't that many local comics of that caliber. Yeah. And so it's just like, it's cool to see Pete work out material in a way. Because before, when he lived in Toronto, you know, maybe I'd see him every couple of years or three years or something like that. Yeah. But it would only be, you'd see the finished result. You wouldn't see his sort of process of growing yeah. material. Mm -hmm. And now, because he's part of this comedy tour he does called Snowed In, yeah. where they do like all the mountain resorts and ski towns. Okay. Um, he has to write like a new 20 every year because it's the same people coming back and back to, the, to see him. Yeah. So yeah, but anyway, he lives in town. So it's like been a real treat to get to see him over the last couple of years. I bet. I remember him from, I think, Just for Laughs. And uh, there was another TV show where everyone got a half an hour, 20, 25 minutes, something like that. Um, he does the, um, maybe I'm mixing him up. Does he do the Arnold Schwarzenegger impersonation? He has a joke with Arnold, yeah. Okay, yeah, I think I know who he is. Yeah. And Zed Lacker, I knew the name rang a bell right away. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I, you know what? Honestly, the, the big guys are always funny, like the Jim Gaffigans and the Joe Rogans and the Chris Rocks and, mm -hmm. and that kind of stuff. But I would much rather, it's, it, I, I attribute it, I had a buddy that played in the WHL. And honestly, I'd rather go watch WHL games than NHL okay. games because everyone seems to be working harder. Um, and you just, I don't know, there's, I don't know what the right word to describe it is. It just seems like there was much more effort put into the comedy when it's like a local Calgary one or, you know, even if a, a really big comic is doing a brand new hour, or working out a brand new hour, that's more exciting to me than watching the ones on Netflix. Yeah, and that's that's fair. Also, there is something with comedy, like, and I don't know what the difference is. Like, I've been trying to kind of, I'm fascinated with it for a few years now, but recorded comedy, like, it loses something outside of the room. Like, there is really something... To it being in the room, right. being in the room with it, and there's some comics that record better than other comics. Yeah, like you'll see. I'm trying to think of a good example, but there's some comics you see live and you're like, "That was hilarious," and then you see the special and you're like, "Oh, it's like it's fine," so yeah, or whatever. But there's other comics that like they translate much better to tape or film or audio. Hmm. And I don't know, I don't can't put my finger on what it is about certain comics, but they just do. Yeah. They just record better. There's definitely an energy in the room, right? Yeah. Like if you have a bunch of people sitting there with their arms crossed, it kind of you know it's hard to get your energy, like the, as an audience member, to get your energy up when everyone's grumpy. Yeah. Because like we did, um, trying to think of the the festival. There was a, a comedy festival maybe ten years ago here in Calgary, mm -hmm. and uh, but all the local bars were inviting comics out just to do fifteen twenty minutes. And so we were hitting as many of those as we can. And it was just comics working out, I think, trying to figure out what the Calgary culture was like and, and what they can and can't get away with. So some of the stuff they were saying, it was just, it was outrageous, but mm -hmm. freaking hilarious, like spanking babies and, mm -hmm. and just crazy stuff, which should even be a funny topic. But the way he presented it was awesome. Yeah. That's the kind of stuff that I think I love is that, that whole working out stage of comedy. Yeah, totally. It, there really is like... um. Uh, value in seeing the process if that's something you value. Yeah. I mean, like, I don't know if everyone does. I kind of have a feeling like a lot of people do. Well, you'll, you'll see it. Like, if you do, like, you know, local cooler bar shows and, like, cooler spaces, like, you'll see they, they, they don't 
mind jokes not being finished. They don't mind, yeah. you know, there being, like, weird rough patches or whatever. But, you know, you'll go do, like, the show I did last weekend in Grand Prairie. Like, you can tell there's a real premium there on, like, doing a, a show. Okay. Like, a real show for them, you know, as opposed yeah. to, like, they don't want to hear me meander or whatever. Like, it's not, not why they're there. Yeah. So were you into, like, public speaking and that before you started comedy? Because you don't look that old. No, I'm 25. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you had to start basically when they let you in a bar. Yeah, I was, like, maybe 18 for, like, six six or eight months, something like that. So did you do any performing or anything before that? Um, Not not too much. No, I, like, did. Like, I liked public speaking in school. I was always fine with it. Yeah. You know? Like, some people, it's, like, they don't, they hate it or whatever. I shit or, my pants. I look terrible. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I have had the opportunity four or five times to do it, and I literally, my son, I was telling him, like, Right now, knowing that I'm on stage in like 20 minutes, my heart is pounding out of my chest. Oh, yeah? I still go do it. Um, but yeah, like it is, it is sheer panic for me. Yeah, I don't, just that, and that was just never a thing I felt, you know? Did anyone in your family do public speaking or perform? Or? No, not really. Like nothing major. Man, like I didn't grow up around anybody that did it or whatever, you know? I wish I knew what part of the brain. You just go and flick the switch and shut that off. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> there's things that I really, really would like to do as far as public speaking or maybe even uh, trying some comedy. Um, but, yeah, it's it's terrifying. Yeah, I know. And for me, it's like, I don't know if it's just because, like, I'm a pretty rational. Like, I just, like, I'm the way I think is, like, I, I am pretty rational, like, step by step. So, like, for me, the thing with public speaking is people are always like, oh, it's terrifying, it's scary. But I've always been like... It's not dangerous, you know? There's, like, not a real danger there. There's, like, things I'm afraid of are actually dangerous, yeah. or at least I'd like to think they are. That, so, <laughs> public speaking, you know, I was like, oh, what's the word? They're going to not like my public speech? Like, yeah. that's, I mean, ultimately fine. You're making me feel like a Neanderthal. <laughs> <laughs> Just no. susceptible to the lizard brain inside. Most my... people have that. I mean, it's not... Well, not the, uh, I heard a psychologist talk about it one time, the fear of public speaking was, like, like back in the old days, like the 1400s, 50, whatever, mm-hmm. like, way, way back... If you had to put, uh, speak in public, it was to be judged. Like you would have to get up in front of the the king or a judge, and they were deciding whether you live, die, or get punished. And so that's what he. Hey everyone! Thank you for listening. Thank you for sharing. We have another dog coming in. Come on, Rambo. You gonna be famous? You don't have to move the camera. It's fine. All right, guys, you can beat, beat it. <laughs> Sorry, keep interrupting. But yeah, that's where they figured the fear of public speaking came okay. from. And so that's why I feel like a Neanderthal. Like I'm still this dumb moron from the 12th century, just worried that someone's going to throw an axe at me or I'm going to fall through a hole in the floor and beat by alligators yeah. or something. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I'm afraid of stuff too. It's just like yeah. not that stuff, right? What's your biggest fear? Uh, honestly, like it's it's kind of like a gross fear, but I'm like... I'm very terrified. So I, I'm very afraid of getting stabbed by a dirty needle. That's like a <laughs> horrible fear of mine. Are you around needles regularly? No, but like I had a friend that he still does it, but he uh, works for the Alex, which is like a, um, it's like a health group in Calgary. I don't know exactly how you describe them. They like do like outreach to the homeless and like okay. um, vaccinations and sexual health for the homeless, that kind of stuff. But one of the, th- he, he's a mover for them. So, you know, they help people get housing or whatever, but some of these people are drug addicts or whatnot. Yeah. And he was just saying like, if you get, poked by like a dirty needle the they have medicine they can give you to not contract hiv yeah but they can't test if you need it or not so they just give it to you because it's like better safe than sorry but it like makes you feel like you have a flu for like i can't remember he said six months or a year like the medicine's very hard 
harsh on you. So it was like one of those things where I was like, oh, gee. So now I'm like, he like explained this and I was like, already the dirty needle thing was scary. And now like if it yeah. happens, you have to like live with a year long flu Nasty. so you don't get more sick. I used to work with uh, the homeless uh, as a security guard in Vancouver's Chinatown. Okay. No one ever told me that. Yeah. <laughs> Granted, this was quite a few years yeah, ago. Yeah. And I don't know how new this is, right? Yeah. But yeah, so I'm like terrified of that. That's like my new fear. Like every time I think about it, it's, oh, it scares me. My biggest one next to public speaking was uh, birds. Oh, yeah? Yeah, I think I figured it out. So I, I listened to a lot of, like, old stuff uh, or podcasts about anthropology and archaeology and, and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And so there was birds at some point that were big enough to swoop down, pick up human beings, mm-hmm. and kill them and eat them. And couldn't you imagine, like, that little bird that flaps near you, that sound is scary for me, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> the only one. But if you would hear that um, in the old days when there were the bigger birds, like, you knew you were going to die if you heard a bird's wings. Yeah. And maybe somewhere my ancestors got wiped out by birds. Yeah, or somebody almost got killed by a bird. <laughs> yeah. It's like a real bad thing. Uh, yeah, so irrational. And I totally get it. Like, what's the little two-pound bird going to do to me? Yeah. I'm going to be done if I had the courage. Uh, animals are dirty, though. Like, that's, like, the thing. That's true. You know, like, I don't want to get some, like, bird disease or whatever. Flying rat flu. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, it's gross. <laughs> Uh, so have you uh, you grew up in Calgary? You've been here your whole life. Yeah, yeah. I'm born and raised. Cool. Uh, um, oh, I lost my train of thought. You enjoy Calgary? Yeah, yeah. I like it. I kind of I'm hoping to move out of Calgary at some point, in, like the next few years, just because it's for comedy. It's a little limited. You yeah, know? there's not real showbiz here or whatnot. Where would you go? Uh, probably now Toronto. I used to think Vancouver, but they had a comedy club there close. So okay, yeah. I think Toronto still got and Montreal. I think it's another big one that has yeah. quite a few big ones. Montreal is nice because they have the festival, but I feel like they're, from what I understand, their local scene's not that bigger than Calgary's. But oh, it is really? nice because they have that, that the festival there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they the predominant scene there is the francophone scene, right? Which not is not what I do. Yeah, it'd be a lot harder to travel. Yeah, exactly. Um, so is this your like your your big plans to be a professional comedian? Yep. Yeah. Do do something comedy related in some aspect. I mean, I don't know. I would like it to be like a touring professional comedian for at least a while. But if that's not it, then like writing on TV shows or some some sort of thing like that as well. Yeah. We had. Uh, um, oh, I'm gonna forget his name. What was his name, Eric? Our last guest. Andy Haynes was just mm-hmm. on last week, and uh, he's done a lot of writing for it. And uh, I think he actually prefers the um, the touring to to the writing right now. Mm-hmm. And then maybe he'll change his mind. He also likes the acting too. Yeah, is that something you've got a desire for? If I d- I've never done acting, I've auditioned for like one thing, um, and I, it's probably something I should do just because like it's a smart financial move if you're in comedy to like yeah. learn how to act. You know, <laughs> right? It's just one of those other skills to have. But yeah, it's I don't. Don't mind it. I mean, I've done some sketch acting, that kind of thing. But yeah, yeah it's never been something I've pursued hard as its own. Is that thing. different than doing comedy for you? Like to to play a role of somebody else or? Yeah, totally. I mean, comedy, like a goal of it is to like try to drill down to myself, you know, like yeah. be as much me as possible. Yeah. Right. But in acting, I mean, not, not every role you're going to get is to just be you. Like right. that's mostly probably not what you're doing. Yeah. And it's also... It's different, like, speaking other people's jokes. Yeah. Like, there's something to that where it's, like, the way to deliver a joke. If I write the joke, I know how to deliver it because I, right. I made it. But then even reading off other people's jokes, like, it's hard to know where to put emphasis or where, where things are funny. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there was a guy just recently, I think, um, it's not Andy Hicks, uh, famous Hicks uh, comedian, way back in the day, like, 70s. Hicks, I don't know. 
Bill Hicks. Oh, Bill Hicks, yeah. Yeah, that um, uh, there's somebody trying to do his old acts on stage now. They're trying to revive Bill Hicks' old, okay. and they're trying to do it exactly <laughs> like Bill. And it's one of the things that I've asked almost every comic on here was like, uh, to do someone else's jokes is a big faux pas. Like, mm-hmm. like that is going to get you run out of the industry, shot and pissed on. Like, just there's, n- it's never going to be acceptable. Yeah, but you can take someone else's song and sing it. And make a whole career of doing that. Yeah. And I never understood the the breakdown. Like, I get before the, you know, your hour's up, your special's done, all that kind of stuff, that you wouldn't want to do that person's jokes. But say, you know, um, Jim Gaffigan from four years ago, why can't someone do his jokes? Yeah, I think um, a big thing is, like, it's, as a comic, like, I mean, there is a performance aspect to it, but you don't really have, like, a sound. Like, bands have individual sounds. You can do a cover that's a creative rendition of that but i do also think you know it's largely a financial thing like it's it's this idea where it's like if you want my jokes you're gonna have to hire me yeah like because that's kind of all you have as a comic right is those those jokes right i mean you have who you are but ultimately like you if you have to be saying your jokes so i think that's i think that's where it comes down to um but yeah it it definitely is like nobody does it i mean even like you don't even want to be and part of it is also being unique like as a stand up you know it's almost just as important to be a unique interesting voice as it is to be funny right yeah. and it's like if somebody else is like duplicating your stuff i think it does lose some of that yeah um they're doing it over in europe right now from what i understand in like france yeah i've heard about that guy yeah well there's a whole group of them from what i understand they're taking like famous comedian sets and just doing them in their own language french and trying to french uh german um czechoslovakia and like they're they're taking it translating it and figuring out how to make someone else's set funny because i know there was a guy in France doing it with Jerry Seinfeld jokes. Yeah. That was the famous one I heard. But yeah, I mean, and that's like, I mean, not that I would ever encourage anybody to do that, but I guess the uh, the one justification is like, Jerry Seinfeld's not going to learn French. Right. You know? He's not going to do that. <laughs> and it's like, why? yeah, why would you do that? Yeah, billions of dollars in exactly, the bank. He right? doesn't need to try 100%. to appease everybody. And so it's like, oh, and even me, I'm not going to learn French for the most part to do comedy. Like, what am I doing if that's the case? I'd rather, like, they learn English if they really care that much, right, you know? Exactly. Um, but yeah, so I guess that's a maybe a little different, but also it is, it is kind of weird that that's going on. I mean, it's just because it is so valued. There was, like, there's a book out called The Comedians. It's like a sort of a history of comedy from of stand-up comedy. I think it's mostly in America. I haven't finished it. I should finish it because it's actually, it's a very good book. Um, but it's written by this fellow in Vancouver called Cliff Nesteroff. But he has a story in there about back in like the Catskills days um, to prevent joke thieves. Like all the comedians like put their jokes in like a like an account or like a vault or some sort of thing. <laughs> really? Yeah. And then but somebody There's no internet you can look it up. Exactly. Right? Yeah. To like to copyright jokes or whatever. And it wasn't like a, it wasn't like legally a thing, but it was like you know accepted in the community that that would be like how you know if somebody if there's ever a dispute they'd go back. He'd say, Oh no, in nineteen 19- 42, I wrote the joke about whatever, and then it's about the, the train vaults. cars or whatever. And then, you know, they'd go back to 42 and they'd be like, oh, he has it written down on this card. Turns yeah. out he did write it in 42, so this guy that wrote it in 46, get out of here. But um, somebody actually robbed the vault. <laughs> somebody stole all <laughs> no the, way. yeah, they stole all the jokes. That is, is hilarious. Yeah, yeah. I, I wish I remember the guy's name yeah. that stole all the jokes, because that is very funny. <laughs> I just heard about a guy, and I don't know if he's actually stealing the jokes or not, but he does his entire set in a tuxedo, 
with gorilla gloves and a gorilla mask. And all of his jokes are from a gorilla a gorilla's point of view. <laughs> <laughs> so that that's he's done and it's the old cat skills kind of one liner ba bang ba bang ba bang yeah. all the way along. Um I haven't seen it yet. I just heard about him the other day, so I was gonna look him up, but it, it just it seems so odd that someone's going to make a career of getting on stage. And the, the cool thing is that if you can mimic his voice, when he passes, someone else can take that show over and just keep going because it's like the unknown comic, right? His mm-hmm. face is hidden. Yeah, that's uh, I, I kind of like that because it's just like an experimental thing to do. Yeah. Like I, I, I really appreciate that. I mean, especially like if you do comedy, you see so much comedy. Yeah. You're like, yeah, if there's a gorilla doing comedy, that's like... <laughs> That's great. It's like one other person that's not just like a regular guy up there talking about regular stuff. Yeah. What's uh? So we talked about your Canadian uh, influences. Who are some of your favorite comics overall? Um, I think like probably my favorite all time comic is this comic named Kyle Canane. Yeah. Uh, he's from L.A. His I remember I listened to his comedy album when I was probably in grade twelve, eleven or twelve, something like that. It's called Death of the Party, and I just remember being like, oh yeah, this is like comedy for me, you know? Because you like watch if you're like a young person, you watch like. At least I did. I don't even know if it's on anymore. I don't have cable. But you'd watch, like, the Comedy Network, and you'd see all these old Just for Last clips or, like, these, like, Comedy Now specials, these Canadian comedy specials. And they're, like, definitely skew, for the most part, older. Yeah. And they're, like, they're, they're, you know, a lot of jokes about, like, wives and kids and, like, all this kind of stuff. I'm like, I don't, you know, I'm 12. I don't care. (laughs) I don't have a wife and kids or whatever. Um, But then I remember, like, hearing his his comedy album, and I was like, oh, this is, like, comedy kind of for me. You know, like, makes sense to me. And, like, his stuff is... He's a really amazing storyteller. He's just like a fantastic. He's my like number one recommendation for for comics to people because I just think okay. not enough people know about him. I'll have to look him up and see. What did you say, Kyle Canaan? Kyle Canaan, yeah. I think I've heard the name. The um, uh, shoot, I'm drawing blanks today. I kicked in the head this week. I started jujitsu again this weekend. Oh yeah. So uh, I set up a gym in my basement, and I rolled for the first time in like a year and a half, and I was. Bagged. Like yeah, it's my brain shut down. It's tiring. Yeah. Have you I, done martial arts? Yeah, I did a little bit of jujitsu. Comedy, I couldn't do it with comedy. Like they're the same hours. If you oh, have a day job, right? I mean, true. if you don't have a day job, then like you go during the day. Yeah. Um. But yeah, I, like I did. Um. I wrestled in high school and stuff. Cool. And so, like, it, I understand. Like when you, yeah, do drain. It's so, it's a yeah. it's a level of tired. I don't <laughs> think people understand. I think people that haven't done it don't understand that you're like oh i'm exhausted and they're like i have worked out you know i like it was on the elliptical for like even like a long time even like two hours you're like you don't understand not the same thing yeah you use every muscle in your body to its limit Mm -hmm. in 15 minutes yeah well and then especially like with i mean jujitsu is a little bit different but with wrestling it's like such a sprint like right because in wrestling explosive it's two minute rounds and at the end of the two minutes you're like i didn't know i could be this tired at the end of two minutes working out (laughs) and then you have to do you know whatever it is 30 second break another two minute round yeah kind of thing but yeah it's like a level it's crazy i trained under uh originally under david lee in Kelowna. he uh, owns tachitos or bc interior martial arts academy Mm -hmm. trained rory mcdonald and like he's an excellent guy but I remember coming into that club and not wanting to do jiu-jitsu. So I was just doing kickboxing and boxing. And mm-hmm. then he's like, hey, you should really try it. Like, you've paid for the classes. Come to the classes. So I went in there and, like, I, I'm, a, I'm a go-getter. Like, I don't like to lose, even though if that makes sense for me to lose. Like, mm-hmm. being the first time doing jiu-jitsu, why would I think I would win? Yeah. But I want to win. <laughs> and so I pushed myself so hard, I ended up vomiting. Oh, wow. Like, it was insane how far and these guys are like talented and they're it was probably nothing for them and then i was like no i want to do it again and so cleaned up my mess 
got a new shirt, went back onto the mats <laughs> and started going again. But yeah, then by the time it was done, I went out to my car and I sat down in my car and I looked at my steering wheel and it was almost too much effort to get my hands up on the steering wheel. Yeah. <laughs> trying to get up there. No, I remember like leaving jujitsu class here and it was like February or something. Real cold out, right? Yeah. And I just remember that walk out of because you're covered in sweat. You're like drenched. Yeah. And that walk out of the car and then heating my car up. I was like, this is the, <laughs> you're just like so uncomfortable. Where, where did you try it? Uh, I did a little bit at Gracie Baja at. Um, You're up in the Northeast. Yeah, it's up on 52nd Avenue. And then I went to, at the time it was called BDB MMA. Oh, right. Uh, or BDB MA, not MMA. And that was like, uh, they moved. So now they're Champions Creed is what they Oh, are, yeah, right? Brian. Yeah. We've had um, Nick Ring on from Champions Creed. Oh, cool. And yeah, he's a, he's a really, really cool guy. We've been trying to get Brian and Hakeem on for probably about six months. Yeah. <laughs> Those people are so dang busy. You yeah, I'm sure. Well, especially Hakeem's like kind of blown up now, right? Well, and he just signed a three-fight deal and had one fight in there, so he knows this is kind of his last chance to to, to make a go of it. And yeah. And he dominated in his last fight in the UFC. Yeah. So are you a UFC fan? Yeah, I'm a little less into it now, but like there was a few years there where I was just like, I couldn't get enough of it. Yeah. I mean, honest, not even a few years, probably like from high school, so like from probably like 16 to like 23 or 24, I was like... Every UFC, yeah, watching everything, and then also like I got pretty into. Um, there's a few guys online that do like very good breakdown articles. Like mm-hmm. this guy Jack Slack, who used to write for Vice. You know, he just writes for himself, but he does like these uh, GIF breakdown articles, right? So okay. like he'll explain techniques, and then he'll show you like just you know enough frames to illustrate like um, different sort of like I don't know, just like different sort of punching techniques or different sort of footwork that guys are using. Yeah, and that so I got like really just like every time there's a UFC, I'd watch it, and then like I'd read this article. <laughs> And then there was like a podcast called Heavy Hands that I used to listen to, but it's okay. It, I actually, you know what? It's still around. They just one of the hosts moved on, so I kind of okay. stopped listening. And the host moved on. Yeah, I, I love those breakdowns. Uh, Robin Black is one of my favorites mm-hmm. to listen to. He does the one minute breakdowns and just the way he—it's like poetry. The way he explains mm-hmm. the fight, it's it's beautiful to me. Um, yeah, I think I uh, if I had put a little more effort into it when I was younger, I might have become professional. But I kind of weighed out in my head and met a few uh, uh, pro fighters like. Um, uh, Tuktarov, I don't know if you remember him from like UFC 5. Yeah, I don't He'd think so, no. come to our club in uh, Kelowna, and he was so punch drunk, he could barely get a whole sentence out without forgetting what he was talking about. And so I had an opportunity to come to Calgary and like get a normal job and, and uh, you know, try to find a wife and a house, yeah. which I did. <laughs> um, or uh, we had people from like Pride and other organizations looking at the club in, in Kelowna, so there was a real opportunity to become pro. And I just looked at all these punch drunk people, I'm like, no, I like my brain. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's definitely tough. Well, even like, what's his name? That NFL thing that happened this morning with Andrew Luck. I haven't heard about this. He just like retired because okay. he like, uh, I think he's having injury issues and like the rehab was being a real strain on him. So he like, he just stepped away. You know, he said yeah. like, basically like, I'm exhausted of all this. I don't want to leave with my body. You know, I want to leave with my body intact. And uh, the fans just booed him like ruthlessly. Wow. So he was like, it was, like, it was kind of an ugly look for Indianapolis. Yeah. But yeah, it's like one of those things where it's just like, you know, that stuff really does take a strain on your body. And when you're younger, you don't think of it. You yeah. Know? You're like, oh yeah, people are fine. But you don't, you don't realize like if you mess up your, even like not even brain stuff, but like if you mess up your knee or whatever. Yeah. And if you do it at the wrong time, like your career could be over in right. just like that. And then you're you're kind of stuck with not, you know, not having uh, any real skills or whatever. And you're just like. I couldn't agree more. Like professional 
anything in sports is dangerous. Like, yeah. Even uh, they're trying to find uh, Tour de France people with uh, CTE, so that brain injury oh, yeah. from being on bikes for hours at a time and shaking their brains that they're getting. I mean, obviously, it's worse in football and, and MMA because they're just taking these massive blows. Yeah. Take a 350-pound guy and run you at you at 40 kilometers an hour. <laughs> totally. <laughs> yeah. Just crush you. Well, and it's like the you know UFC is the same way as... NFL where there's no guaranteed money, you know, like in hockey or whatever, if you get injured, like the and hockey baseball, it's actually kind of messed up that football doesn't have it. It kind of bums me out. Um, but in, you know, the other major sports, the union covers guaranteed contracts, meaning like if you get hurt on the job, they can't just cut you and say like, have a good life, no yeah. more pay out, out for you or whatever. But in football, they have no guaranteed money, right? I didn't know that. I thought that was only college ball. That's crazy yeah, to think so as the, a pro, you can be cut at like any given time. Yeah, so they front load a lot of contracts, right? So you get paid most of it up front so they can't retroactively take it. But I know in some st- instances that has happened. Wow. And then some people try to put guarantees in their contracts, but only stars can get it, right? So if you're like an average NFL player and that thing that came out where like the average NFL career is like, what, three years or something? Yeah, Two years. Yeah. At the end of that three years, they just can walk. If you didn't perform the way you, they wanted you to, they can just cut your contract and walk. Wow. And it's the same thing with MMA, right? The UFC yeah. is the same way. It's not unionized or anything for the fighters. Right, yeah. You, you, If you get a three-fight deal, it's only for this much of you uh, fight and this much of you win in those three. So yeah. you, you have the ability to double if you win all three fights, but... It's not like they've got easy fights in the UFC and no. boxing. They used to give guys, oh, we'll give you two or three easy fights when you've been on an injury, and we'll let you work yourself back well, out. And the way the UFC contracts are written, because they're the only game in town, there's not yeah. really competition, right? Like, at that level, they they do cut, like, I know they just cut Chris Cyborg's contract in the middle of the contract. Like, it was just like... Really? Yeah, whatever. The girl Cyborg. Yeah. Yeah, because she still had fights left, and they were just like, we're not in the business with her anymore. We don't want to... I didn't hear that. ...deal that with sucks. it anymore. Yeah, so they, it's like, it's a real... Uh, it's a real bummer. And then the UFC thing's a bummer, too. Like you said, the win bonuses. Yeah. And they don't get paid much at all in the UFC, especially if their first contract. It's yeah. like... 5000 to fight, 5000 to win. I've seen them as low 16, as that. 16 is the new minimum. Because I do know they bump the minimum up, okay. which is good. But yeah. it's still like, you know, if you have three, you know, your first three fights in a year, you're like... You're not making a ton of money. You're at $48,000. You can make that and as a bagger at uh, Sobeys. Yeah, exactly. And that's <laughs> 48000 before taxes, right? Right. Yeah, that's gross. Yeah. You might get some. Well, the U.S. even made it hard for you to get sponsorships now. Yeah. Because everything's under Reebok. So, like on your website or, you know, in training or YouTube or something like that, you can get some sponsors. But those got to pay jack compared to be able to walk it into the ring. Yeah. Right? And that was huge. If you were on a big pay per view, yeah. you know, I'm sure even you could get a sponsorship deal that accounted for views or whatever, right? Like, yeah. Because, like, that's what they want. They want you to want to see, like, whatever. And I get it. It was a weird, bad look, like, to see Condom Depot all over guys' shorts <laughs> yeah, and stuff. Exactly. It wasn't cool. We always thought they were duping the uh, Brazilian guys because they only spoke Portuguese. Yeah. Went, we'll just write Condom Depot on your... <laughs> <laughs> right across your butt. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, but that was the deal. And I get it from the USC standpoint, too, right? Like, it costs you bucket loads of money to put together an event. Yeah. And there's no guarantee that anyone's going to watch it. And I mean, they probably know a little bit more what their guaranteed numbers are. So they could probably change it a little bit. But obviously, the UFC is not hurting for money anymore. No. And I, I did see, you know, somebody did some research because like all the other professional sports, right, they're split 50-50 because of the collective bargaining agreement. So like the way the money works, I don't know if it's across the board, if it's only for TV deals or whatnot, but like half the money has to go to players and half the money goes to league. Okay. Um, and I know the UFC doesn't have... Somebody did the math on it. It's like the UFC pays out, like, instead of it being 50% of revenue or 50% of profits, however they do the math in the other sports, it's yeah. something like 20-something percent, right? Wow. Because they, they, the fighters, there's no collective 
bargaining for him, right? Yeah. Randy Couture, and I thought it was just for medical reasons, but a few years back, he was trying to start a fighter's union, and he kind of got, you know, crapped on by even some of the fighters for doing it, so mm-hmm. he gave up on it. Uh, but that must have been the reason why, is because there was, you know, back when he was fighting and before him, it was probably even worse. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. Because, well, they don't get medical, you know, it's, like it's it's and if you're in the States, it's like a real, real tough thing. I think they all get medical now. So UFC's hired doctors, okay. and they have that new facility in um, Vegas. Mm-hmm. Uh, can't remember what it's called now, but I believe they can have surgeries, they can have any doctor's uh, stuff taken care of by the UFC. By the UFC, okay. Yeah. So that's pretty decent that if you break your hand. And the thing is, most of these guys are hiding it, right? If they got a broken hand, they're like, it's worth more for me to fight with a broken hand yeah. than it is to tell everybody. Let's just wait till the fight's over, see what opportunity I have, yeah. and then see if it's worthwhile fixing my hand. Yeah. Well, and like it is, like you said, with the unions, with uh, Randy Couture was trying to start. I remember there's a couple, couple different union-type deals. There's like an MMA association or whatever yeah. a couple of years ago as well. And it was like, um, the, I guess the hard part would be getting the buy-in of, you know, the higher up guys. Cause they're, they are getting what they're worth, right? It's yeah. like, it's the lower end UFC fighters. How and that's do you convince what, Conor McGregor to join a union? Yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> yeah. He's, he's doing fine. Exactly. Or George St. Pierre. Although, you know, Bellator is moving up really good. They've got a lot of awesome fighters over there. Mm-hmm. There's, um, not risen. There's another, wish I can remember the name. Is of it, it one? That's the one. Um, uh, they're doing really, really well right now as well. So oh, USC's great. got some great competition coming up, which may change. One won't let you do um, um, twenty-four hour weigh-ins anymore. Yeah, they have a they have a weird weigh-in system. I've heard, I've heard about it a little bit. Yeah, yeah that's they cool. check you six weeks out for hydration and body fat and health, and then every week they come in and check you. So you weigh in the day of the fight, and you have to be at weight. It has to be within a certain percentage of your original weight six weeks out, so you can't do these massive weight cuts. So they know you can't hold that big weight cut for six weeks, so you have to be as close as you can to your your weigh-in weight six weeks out and not change that. Well, who... I'm trying to remember. There's a... um one of the athletic commissions does something. It's because it's not binding. They can't they can't cut your fight or whatever. Yeah. But they just published. It was for a couple of UFC cards ago. It would kind of it kind of blew up on Twitter. That's how I found out about it. Um, but they they do the day of weigh-ins and they calculate percentage of like you know body yeah. weight re put on and stuff. And then some of them are huge. I want to say like some of them were like. 24 pounds or something, 23 pounds. I think there's guys doing more of that. So Benavides fights at 155 and mm-hmm. walks around at 200 pounds. Mm-hmm. Like he does a 55 pound, or no, sorry, he fights at 145. So he'll do a 55 pound cut. Yeah. And overnight he'll put back on 25, 30 pounds. Yeah. Because I, I think you're right. I think that their walk around weight versus weigh in weight is even more drastic. But yeah. then the, the weigh in to fight one is the one they can publish easily, right? Yeah. Because they can. They so I can't remember both. what it, it might be. California is doing it or something. It's crazy to think that they get themselves that dehydrated just to make. You know, some of these guys are making twenty five thousand or thirty thousand mm-hmm. dollars just to fight. Maybe fifty or sixty thousand dollars to win. Yeah, and you're literally getting at death's door to do it. I know. Well, it was one of those things like in Canada, like our. You know, when I wrestled in high school, we don't have. Uh, it's not the same way it is in the states where there's not not a ton of scholarships available, that kind of thing. Yeah. So people don't take it as seriously. And one of the things that's great about that is people aren't cutting weight. Like, yeah. And so it was like, I can't imagine no. having to, you know, do that. Like, I mean, the most I ever cut was like, just so I made sure I hit the same weight every time, like four pounds or something. Like, it wasn't much. Yeah. 
it's a tiny amount of weight, and that you can lose that in a, for the week. Like you don't have to, you know, it wasn't some sort of thing where I'm trying to be bigger than everybody else. It was right. just to make sure I'm wrestling the same guys. That's right. Yeah. But yeah, if like it's crazy because I know they've had people die in college wrestling and stuff from weight cutting and stuff. Yeah, yeah. down in the states, it's horrific. Even UFC or uh, MMA, there's been quite a few deaths or really close to near death experiences yeah. for people cutting weight. Chris Cyborg, do you ever watch her weight cut? I know she had one. I know I saw a clip of her like screaming in a bathtub one time. She was like in a hot bathtub, like crying, yeah, crying and screaming. Yeah, yeah it's just horrific. But she was a gigantic woman, yeah, fighting at uh, one thirty-five. I bet you she walks around at one hundred eighty-five, hundred ninety pounds. Yeah, but that's where I'm at. Can you imagine me at one thirty-five? I want to say Chris Cyborg. That last card she was on was the one that they published the uh, okay. weight cutting for, so you can see it. But yeah, it's it's pretty. It was pretty insane. Yeah, they moved. Weight class up. So they were fighting at 145 yeah. at the last one. And I don't know where they're going to find fighters for her, no matter where she goes. Like, she is so talented and hits so damn hard. Like, everyone they put in the ring with her, with the exception of, uh, was it Holly and Nunes? No, she beat Holly. Yeah, Nunes, Nunes was on the beat her, yeah. Nunes beat the pants off. Like, just yeah. lit her up. So that's another woman that I can't believe, or I can't believe how... Um, how much weight she cuts? Yeah, I'm sure it's massive. I don't, I don't yeah. like. Obviously, don't know exactly. And she, you can tell she's a smaller frame than Chris Cyborg, but it is like, it is insane. Like how much weight they were at. Because that is the thing. Like Chris Cyborg's so much bigger than your average woman that it just doesn't. It's so hard to find. You know, fight. It's like the same thing with uh, male fighters. Is like the reason why like one forty five through one seventy those divisions are so stacked because that's how big average guys are if they cut weight right exactly yeah. you know like probably one fifty five is the most stacked and then one forty five or one seventy second and third right something like that but yeah. it's it's because there's the talent pool of men that size is so vast right whereas like you know guys even up at one eighty five once you start like middleweights you're like oh that's like a big guy that's a very big guy right yeah. so there's only limited those guys are walking around at 225, 230. Yeah. So like yep. to cut down to 185, they've got to be that big. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then you see the guys like Brock Lesnar and uh, Francis Ngano and those guys, I, I, they don't even seem human. Like they're, especially Francis, because I don't think he's juiced. Like he's just naturally that big. Huge. Yeah. Yeah. You're, well, and there was one guy who wrestled at the same time I did in high school and he fights MMA now. But I remember seeing him at, at, uh, tournaments and stuff and like obviously nowhere near my weight class but i was just like that guy's giant and he was like only 5'11 but he's like 250 something or whatever you're just like that's a it's a lot of muscle for your heart and he could dunk he was like 5'11 can dunk he's like like, that's crazy (laughs) just explosive power. yeah exactly yeah yeah. the um the massage therapist i used to go to she was six foot one and pretty pretty good size pretty thick girl probably um if I had to guess her weight, she's probably 165, 170. So she was a decent-sized girl. Mm-hmm. And she married a CFL football player, um, Andrew, I can't think of his last name right now. But anyways, he was like 6'11". I think he was 400 and something pounds. Oh, jeez. Like, he was huge. He was so big. I followed him into the massage uh, office in the main room there and, like, through a commercial door. He had a duck and turn. Get through the door. <laughs> it was wider than a door. I'm like, holy darn it. Like, that's not even the same thing as me. Yeah. Like, yeah. I, like, I felt like a fly. He just grabbed me and plucked limbs off and beat me to death with him if he wanted to. Well, that's a great, because, like, you know, you see somebody that's like a basketball player and they're 6'11 and they, they look tall. Right. You know, they look long. But then you see football players and you don't realize they're, 
you know, right. s- sometimes it's six eight, six nine, six eleven, or whatever, yeah. because they're so wide, they seem proportionately wider <laughs> than they are. T- and you're like, that, how, how are you that wide? At Do you think about color? the amount of meat on that guy? Yeah. <laughs> it's just insane. <laughs> I ended up becoming friends with the two of them and hanging out a little bit. And he was so big, like his thighs were bigger than my waist. Like he had, I think, 38 or uh, 40 inch thighs. Like it, it was insane how big yeah. they were. He couldn't sit at a regular kitchen table. He had to have one custom made for him. Of course, he did it up like a Viking. There was like spikes, and I think they made it out of it bone or something. Yeah. Like that. It, was, <laughs> it was massive. It's, why do you have to make, you shouldn't make yourself scarier if you're already. <laughs> That's that it, guy. right? He's like, I want to be even more scary. Yeah. We were actually uh, uh, just at another friend's place today talking about him because they uh this, this couple had a baby and at nine months old this kid was walking and okay. was three feet tall Jeez. at nine months she wanted to get a shirt for the kid saying i'm not retarded i'm only nine months old because <laughs> you know you look at a kid that's this tall and go oh why isn't he talking and i was like because he's a baby yeah. <laughs> but like nine months is early to walk but he was just huge so yeah. he was built like his dad that's crazy <laughs> I, I can't even imagine Couple of Vikings producing kids. Yeah, yeah, no kidding. Jeez. Uh, so what's uh, what's next for you? What what kind of shows you got coming up? Where are you planning on going? Um, I don't have anything like book. Well, actually, you know, I'm in Coleman, Alberta, uh, on the 31st, and then I'm doing a show at Oak Tree Lounge on August 30th. But yeah, other than that, just like local shows and that kind of thing. Cool. Yeah, yeah I'll have to hook up with you. There's one in Airdrie that comes at uh, Bambinos. Have you heard about that? Who is it? Because I feel like there's also one at a brewery out here. It's occasional. Um, there's Brewster's, and then there's the brewery on the east side, and I cannot remember the name of it right now. I think I hit them up for sponsorship for the podcast. I oh, yeah? I hear back from them, but I should still t- say what their name is. Fitzsimmons. Fitzsimmons, maybe? Yeah, because I know um, there's a comic who, I think he lives in Airdrie. Barry Pierce is his name. Okay. And he, uh, you know, he's like a little, he's a newer on the scene. Yeah. Um, but he, I think he runs one out of, he might... It's either a brewery in Airdrie on like the very north end of Calgary. I can't remember which. Okay. But I know that one's monthly maybe, but I I don't know about Bambinos. Yeah, they did or they've done I think three or four shows there in the last year. Okay. Uh, but I'd like to see a comedy uh scene out here in Airdrie. It'd be brilliant cuz mm-hmm. uh, driving into the laugh shop, it's okay, but you know, 40 minute drive. Yeah. $100 cab ride home. Yeah, no kidding, hey. <laughs> it gets expensive. It's just after, like cheaper uh, to stay at Lash. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they get the Blackfoot. Uh, are you playing at the Blackfoot? No, occasionally, but I don't have any like set days there. So okay. I just show up for guest spots. So I just cool. pop in and then if they. Yeah. I'm trying to think how I found you on. Uh, I'm like super stalker guy, but I can't remember how we actually hooked oh, up. Okay. I, for some reason, I th- thought you would have seen me uh, at Lash because you messaged me like the day after a show, but I guess not. Because I was on a show with Andy that weekend on the Thursday. I didn't make it out to Andy's show. That must have been what it was. So I saw the uh, the set list, I think, and I messaged everybody oh, on the set okay. list. Uh, we left for Nova Scotia. Um, no. Was it the day on Andy? No, no, no. Andy's was just last week. Um, Vancouver. That's what it was. Yeah, we were leaving for Vancouver. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that's too bad. I'd like to get out and see more shows. I wish I had more time. I need to not have a regular job. Yeah, I mean, it's a hassle, right? <laughs> What's your regular job? I do records management. Records management? Is yeah. that a medical thing? No, not at, not at a, uh, an oil and gas company, but it's just like a okay. managing paperwork and stuff and yep. creating creating documents. Docu- document control is the other word for it, I guess. Okay. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah, Jason Fredrickson, uh, I was just talking to you about, too, the other comic that he works for Oilfield Companies, too, and does comedy. Yeah. I think he does IT, though. Yeah, he's an IT guy. Yeah, yeah cool. Yeah. Um, I'm 
drawing a blank again. See, this is what I get when I get too tired. I should have <laughs> a nap before the show. Um, do you have a question for him? <laughs> yeah. Do you do any other kind of uh, public speaking stuff, or is it just strictly comedy? No, just comedy. I mean, yeah. I'm not like opposed to it, but never. I've like once or twice have done like done stuff at meetings at work, but like not like a real yeah as a gig. Yeah, I know there's some there's um Andrew Fung who's a Calgarian who's um on Kim's Convenience. Oh yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. The CBC show. He was like a loose moose guy, so an improv guy. But he, I know he was doing like some sort of thing for a year. Maybe it was just a year, but anyway, it was for it was for RBC or Scotia. It was for one of the big banks and the, the yeah. Canadian. But he was like the MC at all their corporate events and stuff. Yeah. And uh, apparently, like they loved it because it was just like you know you have something a little less boring than a corporate <laughs> meeting. Kicking, yeah, yeah, exactly, kicking everything off. I guess that's uh, the other part of comedy that a lot of people don't talk about. We always think about bars or like comedy clubs and stuff like that. That that's sort of the road to go. But there's a lot of comics that do the um, the whole corporate thing, right? Yeah, it's like um, it's almost a whole other thing. I mean, I've done a little bit of it, and like I tend to work not exclusively clean, but I have like you know a decent amount of clean material, so I I could do it. Um, but it's also it's this thing you don't think of necessarily where you're like, oh, it's clean in terms of content and like cursing and that kind of thing. But it almost means like a different thing. Like it almost means like a sort of like not middle of the road because that's like insulting but something more like a more standard right yeah to do all those things but yeah it is a lot of people don't you don't think of it but there's there's definitely like corporate gigs out there when jay leno made a career out of doing corporate gigs and of course the tonight show yeah but, uh he said most of his money came from the corporate gigs he would just go and basically do the same set for 25 years yeah well i, I know because he's never recorded anything and right. like, he's a legendary comic from the 70s like yeah. um he was a big even like at that time, I guess he was a, he was a club guy as well, and he was like sort of known for being like the best comedian. Like people yeah. like, oh, Jay Leno's the best comedian working today, kind of thing. Which you don't you know you don't necessarily associate no. with him because he has he has no body of work. Right. Like that's an interesting thing about him where there's because he wants to you know keep the act or whatever doesn't want to have to rewrite stuff. Yeah. He's never released anything, and right. it's like I wonder. I kind of I hope he has something recorded for if he passes away and he no longer needs that to be like his yeah. thing he has to because it is it's a little unfortunate that everyone's like oh this was the best guy working yeah. in from like 1970 to 1976 or whatever the years were yeah. and there's no no documentation of it at all I know right? it's crazy but he's like he's kind of a weird guy because he's like never spent any of his Tonight Show money like I know that's kind of a famous thing with him like he's like I made I don't know how much money hundreds of millions of dollars probably yeah on the Tonight Show and he's never spent a dime of it he keeps it all in savings it's crazy to me hey beat it the um uh he was I listened to an interview with him and he was saying that normal comics like the club comics or the spe- are stupid like all the money's in corporate why would you want to rewrite mm-hmm. a show and waste all the time and money and effort just get into corporate stuff and uh, do the same set over and over yeah. and over yeah yeah it's weird I don't know I I don't understand that. Um, I mean, I do. From he's obviously financially, rich, right? but it makes like, sense. It, I just don't. Well, but even then, it's like one of those things when you know, if you have, you know, a hundred million dollars versus five million dollars, I'm like, I don't know how much happier you are with a hundred million dollars. <laughs> I think you're yeah. already, you know, you already have. There's that thing where somebody was saying like, I, I don't know if it's still the same figure, but I remember hearing people were like, oh, if you have like eighty thousand dollars, like that's an amount of money that like. It, money stops making you happier after that point. Hmm. Like if you have that amount, like consistently, like I'm not saying $80,000 for the rest of your life, but if you yeah. consistently have that sort of amount of money, they're like, yeah, money doesn't really impact your happiness past that point. 
but it's like one of those things where it's like you know i don't i don't know if that's a more like more fulfilling life to have yeah hordes of cash and never rewrite anything or but i guess if you don't find that part of it fun then I, it's just a job at that point right i think it's got a lot to do with people's relationships with money you hear you know really really wealthy people talking about why they do things it is never revolving around money and people without money always think that everyone does everything for money mm-hmm. and so if you and maybe this is a not a rule or it's just a generality is that if you were to put money last in the equation um you would be more successful happier have more fun that people take so much i mean we talked about our faith a little bit beforehand and in the bible it talks about uh, the love of money is a root of all evil and a lot of people quote it as uh, money is a root of all evil mm-hmm. but it's not it's the love of money it's a relation a bad relationship with money if you love money um that's the wrong thing to be loving so that's the root of all mm-hmm. evil if you were to put it way on the back burner and just did the stuff that you loved and waited for the money to come it would come yeah i think and i like just for myself like i don't derive a lot of my happiness from money which is or even like i don't even like material success even like not even just monetarily like i i don't know like i i tend to i guess i get my happiness from like a sense of community with like my friends and stuff like that tends to be the thing um and i don't know if that's just part of me being like pretty young or i'm just like yeah it's fine to you know not have that much money right now i'm 25 (laughs) like it's there's no this, need for it. Yeah, right? exactly. Right. Like I'm not, and I'm sure it would be different if I was stressing on paying my bills, but like basically <laughs> I'm at that point in my life where I'm like, if I've got my bills covered, like that's, that's all you need. Yeah. That's what I need right now. Have you heard of the Enneagram? Oh, uh, that sounds very familiar, but I don't know what it is. So it's become quite popular lately, but basically it's a, um, I don't know, a thousand or 2000 year old way of evaluating yourself, like a self evaluation. Okay. So you get, uh, you do a test and it tells you if you're a uh, one through nine. So I guess Enya means nine and Graham means Oh, I've picture. heard about this number thing. Yeah, I know the number thing. Yeah, so we've just recently with our family and our church gone through this whole thing. And uh, the number fives, which is my son and my wife, they were saying that they don't see any value in material belongings. So mm-hmm. if you have a couch, why would you need a better couch? Or if yeah. you have a running vehicle what does it matter if it's rusted out or garbage? Like as long as it's running, that's all that it matters yeah. to you. And uh, so I thought that was really cool because I think a majority of people put a higher value on money and material things um, than than not. Yeah. Right? Yeah, well, and that's like definitely like a thing in my, like I'm, I'm kind of that way as well where I don't need to necessarily see the, uh, like if my cars look kind of crappy, it's fine. Like yeah. I don't care at all as long as it runs. I mean, it got me to Grand Prairie and back. That's all I need, right? Like, <laughs> right. Um, but yeah, and it's totally that thing as well. Where I, the sort of the the way I internally measure success isn't isn't necessarily based on external accolades as much as they're great, right? Yeah. Like, but one of the things is like, and maybe it's to my detriment with stuff. But like with comedy, I'm like, oh, I just like, you know, making comedy that I think is good. Like that's ultimately my goal and i hope other things come from that you know right but for myself i'm like i like writing comedy that i like like that's what i that's why i do it yeah but yeah it's definitely that that kind of thing where it's it's not necessarily these external accolades or material goods in that in that way that drive me to to do things so funny because i'm very fine like finances are always on my mind Mm -hmm. one 
because I have a family yeah. and a house and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So I want to make sure that that's 100% covered. Yeah. But then everything else I do, any passion of mine, I think, how can I monetize this? Yeah. <laughs> right off the bat. Like, that's that's the first thought that comes to my mind. Well, that's great. Like, if it works, I mean, that's, that's like, the goal. Like, if you can if you can get money for stuff, that's... I that's haven't found the big secret yet. Awesome. No, I, I mean, re- it's not easy, right? <laughs> <laughs> I still have to rely on my regular job to, yeah. to pay the bills. But, like, I do the podcast, which I absolutely love. I get to work with my son. You know, he produces all of these and helps with the technical stuff because his dad's a turns out it was a orangutan of some sort yeah <laughs> and uh um, but we're always looking at how to monetize i had my insurance guy over the other day and we're rewriting all my health and uh sickness and you know accident insurance and stuff like yep. that and i found out he owns a local restaurant and so right away i'm like do you want to sponsor the show <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, we're waiting to find out if he wants to sponsor the show or not yeah 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 it's i mean it's definitely it's a. Uh, it's just like a different, I guess it's just a different way of looking at things. Yeah. You know, because it is, I think, I don't know. I, I guess, uh, I, uh, I'm not sure like, cause I obviously I need to monetize comedy and it's something I've probably actually done like a bad job at doing yeah. is monetizing it. But it seems like no comic does a good job of it. Yeah. It just happens. Well, cause it's, what makes it hard to monetize is it's fun. So it's like, it's easy to get people that want to do comedy and yeah. make it fun. But like the money in comedy, at least on the local levels, like a lot of it's about producing shows or like doing booking stuff, right? Yeah. Because like that's not fun. So it's like it's harder to get a bunch of people that are willing to do it for not much money, right? Yeah. I, I just talked to uh, Andrew Gross. Um, super okay. nice guy. I tried to get him on the show, but he's, uh, I, I don't know how famous he is. I, I've known him for a long time and he's been around okay. forever, but he's got a club up in Edmonton. Um, I can't remember the name of it right now. Sorry. Um, but he, that's what he mostly does is produce comedy shows. So he does really, really well. And, uh, oh, Andrew, yeah, Eric's going to look it up. Yeah. Um, Andrew Gross, uh, comedy show. Um, but yeah, he, that's, it's a real job. Like it's that, that grind job that mm-hmm. probably no one's going to sign up to do. He would rather just do jokes all day long and, uh, Oh, that's right. We took the internet out of this computer right oh, now. Oh, shoot. <laughs> yeah. And uh, um, so he didn't have time to come on the show. You know, he says he gets in, you know, 10, 12 shows a year in, in Canada. All of his time is putting together this comedy. I think it's called the YYE or YGE. What's the Edmonton? YEG, I think. YEG yeah. uh, Comedy Festival. Okay. So, uh, yeah, he didn't want to come on the show. He didn't want to promote it. He's got family that are more important than yeah. promoting himself. And, uh, yeah, it's just it's unfortunate that, you know, we look at the States and we see comedians down there and we assume they're making whatever millions, maybe billions of dollars. And mm-hmm. some of them probably do. And in Canada, it's a lot harder to do. Yeah, it's a weird thing. Like, you have to start comedy in Canada and then you have to get good at comedy in Canada and then you have to get a visa to go to the States and you have to restart doing comedy in the States and then get good at, you're already good. So I guess you do have, you have skills for it, Yeah. but it's just like you have to build up a second time. Yeah. Right. So it it is complicated, but yeah, I I don't know. It's, um, it's just like, I always think of like, uh, not always, but sometimes I think about like, you know, you always hear like these stories of like writers or artists or whatever. And they're like not appreciated until long after they've passed. Right. Yeah. And it is one of those things where it's like, you know, we just, I, as a culture, we do. We just put so much value on money because it's an. I th- I don't think it's that people even love money that much. It's yeah. that it's an easy measurement of success, right? Right. Like you can be like, 
one to a hundred, one dollar or a hundred. Like there's like, it's easy. It's got increments. We all understand that. That's so true. Whereas I think it's much harder to measure the intrinsic artistic value of things or cultural value or whatever it is. Because or it's happiness. Subjective. Yeah, or how much happiness you derive and on a personal level, but even just as like a creative level, you know, like with yeah. your podcast or whatever, or with anything you do, like measure the 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 creative value that you're generating in terms of that right yeah like there's not a there's not an easy shorthand scale where you can be like oh this is a hundred dollars of or a hundred creative value points or right. whatever right and they're trying really hard with podcasts I know like you do some of the calculations uh, or some of the reading online about it and to, for sponsorship they're saying twenty five dollars per thousand viewers is like an average price for mm-hmm. a sponsorship so if you have ten thousand viewers it's worth twenty five hundred dollars for every um, person or every yeah. ad that you put on the show, and that that's a that's a great way of doing it. Um, but there's lots of people that probably have a million views, and they're not interested in the money of it. They're just like, I want to do this for, you know, uh, moral reasons or to educate or to whatever, and they're not going after the financial. And there's other guys that are only going after the financial, yeah. but they don't have the the creative means to make it as as fun or as popular as, as you want. Else. Yeah, and I think. I think it's changing now because people know about podcasts, yeah. but I do know when I started listening, it seemed like there was like a, a purity to it Yeah, that I, I think you can pick up on, um, where it was like, you know, there's, there's something to the fact that there, there wasn't necessarily an infrastructure built in for people to make money. So they were just doing it to do it. Right. You know, there was like the value came from doing it. The work itself was the, the, the value the reward. people were deriving from it. Right. Yeah. No, I agree. I think it, it totally is. And it's one of the things with this show, I've had a few people criticize the length. No one listening, but just friends and family. They're like, hey, you, you should cut this down to like a half an hour. And I want to focus very much on building relationships and, and good conversation and mm-hmm. learning about people. And I don't think you can do that in half an hour or even 40 minutes. Because yeah. sometimes it takes a little while to get that that flow going to a conversation. Totally. And I do I do think there's... I think there's a lot of like, you know, podcasts that are like scripted. Yeah. Um, and that, I think that works better in like a smaller um, chunk because it's, you know, it's scripted. Yeah. It's, it's not, it's not a conversation essentially being recorded. Like there's, yeah. and you're seeing that with podcasting, there's a diversity of different podcasts happening now. Um, and it's been like that for a while. I shouldn't say happening now because there's definitely people I've yeah. seen for a long time doing that kind of work. And that's very interesting work. But I, I do think there is something to what you're saying where it's like, you know, if you're using the podcast partially to hopefully to grow it as a podcast and make a business out of it, but then also to um, create a sense of community and create, you know, yeah. try to understand different guests and what they do and what their roles are. Yeah. You know, one of the things that I realized probably too late in life was the value of people around me. And as part of the reasons for doing this podcast is that, you know, I basically stuck to people that were like me. Mm-hmm. And which I think most youth do, right? You find people that do the things that you like, and so you do that with them. Unfortunately, yeah. the people I found were really big into drugs, and not for a healthy reason, <laughs> and uh, alcohol and womanizing and stuff like that. So I spent a majority of my life, and then when I met my wife, I was just, I fell in love, and I was all done doing that. I'm like, let's just, you know, we started a business, we got married, started having kids, bought a house, like all that kind of stuff. And so anything else back there, but then you lose yourself. Like, who are you? How do you, what am I supposed to do now as a dad for fun? Like, what's the culture of a mm-hmm. dad? And it turns out there's no real culture of a dad. It, it <laughs> ranges from, you know, one end of the universe to the other as far as what it is. But I didn't know the answers to those. Yeah. And the more um, uh, I got into groups and organizations and started getting out and being more social and learning, 
learning. I was like, man, there's so much that I don't know out there, like that I want to do, I want to learn about. I need to know what do um, African men, how do they father people? Or what do um, Jewish people do? Or what do MMA fighters, how do they organize their, like, you know what I mean? Like there's Mm -hmm. just so many views in the world and there's just not enough time to get to them all. (laughs) Yeah, no, that's a trap, right? Trying to be comprehensive in your knowledge. Like I think it's a, it can be a detriment where like, if you know, it's that thing, you know, it's that classic, like jack of all trades, master of nothing where you're going to, if you try to learn about everything, you'll, you'll never get deep enough into anything to, 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 to have value in it. Yeah. To find real, the real value in it. Right. Yeah. And I think for me, it's, it just at a hundred percent revolves around people. Like my life, if you ask someone that knew me when I was 20 and then had them describe what they think I would be now, I don't think it's anything yeah. at all. Like it, I was a, I was a shithead. I was just a dumb guy and just had no, I didn't put value on anything. At mm-hmm. all, money, people, things—just there was zero value. So you know, any when I dated in my twenties, probably has a very low opinion of who I am yeah. as, a, <laughs> as a person. Um, and I wish them all the best, and I hope that one day they'll hear this or meet me and like, I'm not that person anymore. I fixed yeah. it. <laughs> I'm feeling better now. Um, but yeah, I think that's important to people um, as a whole. To and maybe that's the reward of comics. When you get down into a group and you start telling your stories and your jokes and, and, and all that kind of stuff and you're getting this vibe back at you, that's why you've got such a thick skin because the reward is so great. The applause, the laughter and all that. The like, I can take a few shots for crappy jokes or mm-hmm. whatever because I know what I can get out of these people. Yeah, and it's also, I mean, honestly, like I, it's it's probably not a positive character trait in most people but i do think it's a thing with comedy that's like helpful is like um there's a real instant gratification to it yeah you know pass or fail like you know right away there's yeah. no waiting around to, for months to it's see like how putting it a tv out. show out a it's, year recorded yeah. a year ago and yeah yeah or any other job like most jobs you know it's not no. like in my day job not all my projects are instant pass like it's like you know sometimes you work on something for two months yeah and you're like oh this didn't work it it was yeah. a fail. Uh, yeah, I didn't waste my time, but it was a little bit of a waste of a time because, like, yeah. the the way things work is they're not always going to be successful. But you have to wait in a lot of like a lot of different things, months or years or however long to figure right. that out, right? Yeah. Um, but with comedy, it's nice because, and I, I'm just I'm that kind of person. I do love instant gratification. I think yeah. to an extent, everyone does. Yeah, yeah. But it is it is that thing, right? Where it's just like you know right away if you did a good or job bad job. It's not. For the most part, that's not really a. It's, there's not really a question of whether or not that was good or bad. Like it's yeah. there's a pass fail mechanism. You get green or red right away, right? Well, that's a cool part too. It's not like you guys work on it as the show, mm-hmm. right? Where like if you're a, a singer songwriter, you get that song as perfect as you can, and then you present it to everybody. Yeah. Where comics do the opposite. Like I'm gonna go up on stage and I'm gonna tell this story and let's see how it lands. And then you might tell it again the next night and try it a little bit different and a little bit. But that story could suck for whatever, six months or a year, <laughs> yeah. two years until you find the thing that makes everyone laugh. Yeah, totally. Yeah. It's because like, I don't know, I'm just like not that guy. Like if something's not working for me for a little while, I'm, I will drop it. Like yeah. after like maybe four, five attempts at something. Okay. If I try it out, if it's a variety of different situations, you know? Yeah. But it's uh. Yeah, that is it is an interesting thing because my sister she's a musician. Okay, and uh, it is very much like I often wonder because like 
she's a musician. She doesn't go like I'm always out doing shows. Like this week I did, I mean, probably like six shows. Like I'm wow. always doing shows. Yeah. Um, but she because the nature of music, it's not like that. You yeah. know, you're not going out every night because there's there's work you can do at home, right? There's yeah. work you can do in private where comedy doesn't really have that. No, you need the audience. Yeah. yeah. You absolutely have to have those people in front of you for it to be funny. Yeah, and I haven't seen there's a guy, Drew Michael, did a special on HBO with no audience yeah. last year, and I haven't seen it yet, but I'm now it's kind of in my queue. It's on HBO, Yeah, and so I didn't have, because like Canada, if you have any listeners in the States, we didn't have HBO Go for a long time, okay. and now it's like part of Crave, so I finally have HBO like yeah. as a person, uh, so I'll, <laughs> I'll see it now at some point. But okay. yeah, it was, it was, it's an interesting experiment, you know? Um, there was uh, there's a few guys who are really good at it, like someone like, um, you know who Kyle Dunnigan is? He is good at like his internet stuff, like the stuff that he records. He doesn't do it in front of anybody. It's freaking hilarious. Yeah, he kills it. I don't know. He has a live show, but I don't even know how good that show would work live. Like it almost has to be on the internet to be funny. Well, I, I know he's been doing. Kyle Dunnigan has been a comedian for a long time. Yeah, like, I think he's he does have this Instagram success now. Yeah, which is great for him. But he used to write for like the Sarah Silverman program. He's been a, he's been a yeah. unknown. He used to have a a pretty. Pretty successful podcast with Tig Notaro, if you know who she is. Yeah, yeah. Um, I didn't know he did a podcast with her. Yeah, that I seems like an odd match. Professor Blast. Well, he's like friends with that whole crew, and it is like a f- weird match, right? Yeah. But I think that's part of what makes it work. They have an interesting chemistry. Wow. She's so dry. Like, she's very funny. Yeah. But it's a very dry humor, like um, Elvira Kurt kind of yeah, okay, style, yeah. right? Like, it's just, there's definitely funny in there, but you have to be her fan. Yeah, and you have to, and actually, she on her last special, she has a very funny joke about going to Las Vegas and just doing a horrible job. Okay. Uh, it's it's a very funny thing. Like I, to, I can't remember what her last special was called, but it's on there. Yeah. Um. But yeah, it is. You do kind of have to be your fan, or you have to be a fan of that. Like it requires right. a certain patience and a certain listening. Yeah. Like when I was talking earlier about that lady at the show that was going like wah wah after every <laughs> like if wah, you were Tig Notaro, it would that would. It would just undermine the whole thing, right? Because you know? there's there's uh, a texture to the quietness of her. That's right. That you can't be having somebody talk over; it'll ruin it. Right, and and I think that's what I'm fascinated with with public speaking is that there's a power if you listen to a preacher or Tony Robbins or uh, Hitler. Um, <laughs> honestly, they have. There's something about them where they can captivate a large audience, and yeah. there's something that is so exciting for me in that. Whether it's comedy or or just I don't know talking about uh, my industry or or anything like that, that I'll find super super cool that you've developed this. And so like, doesn't matter who you listen to, Jordan Peterson or like I said, Hitler or Stalin. There's something about, and I haven't figured out what it is, and that's what I want to figure out. Yeah, well, I think I don't know if it's one thing, and I think that's what's interesting about like that is that it can be, you know, it can go from. It's not just like everybody has a one thing that's magnetic or charismatic about them, right? But there's yeah. like different ways to do it, and I think that the diversity of that, the diversity of like, there's different ways to magnetize a group of people. Yeah, that's that's a sort of a fascinating thing, right? Yeah, because some people are based on content. That's what mm-hmm. captivates people, and they can just read it out in a bland voice and still keep people captivated because it's something they want. And then other people are, are like Hitler. like He's saying the most ridiculous things that you can imagine, and everyone is hell-bent on listening to him. Yeah, and there's, I mean, like you see with like Donald Trump, there's like a confidence thing. But I do think, and I mean, in comedy, it's a 
thing I think about, but it might apply to all public speaking. I've never really thought about it. Yeah. But I feel like there's like almost there's like a magnetism where people you project out to people. Yeah. And there's like a separate magnetism, like we're talking about Tignataro has it, or like I'm sure other people have it. I just can't think of anybody off the top of my head where they like it's almost like a, a projection out from the performer or like a lean in from the audience. And they're right. like different things, right? Like there's something to that where I don't know if it's just content. I think there's something there's something else there. Right. Because it goes beyond just the words. But it's it's getting it's this ability to get people to lean in and listen closely to what you're saying, you know? Yeah. Do you uh do you get high from doing a show? Like is the excitement the last does that like how long does that last for you? Like is it like you could do one show and it lasts you a whole month, you're like, man, that was awesome. <laughs> or is it like you need that like a drug every day? Um, I definitely like I really do you do kind of jones for it. I do definitely get a thing where I'm like, I wanna do stand up like I'm probably gonna go do a show tonight. Yeah. That Where at? Uh Juliet's Castle. Okay. Um they do one on Sundays. It's like I run a show at Vern's on Tuesdays and they're both both those two shows they're like sometimes a little light on audience. They don't yeah. have many people there. It's not going to be that good. I can almost guarantee it'll be like a weird show if you go to as an audience member. Yeah. But it'll be fun. Like if you're interested in the workings of comedy, yeah. like it's really the workings of comedy. You'll see cool a bunch of, yeah, super local comedians or new guys or whatever yeah. going up for the first times or close to, you know, yeah, that kind of thing. But I'm, it's one of those things where it's like, it might even be hard for me to get value from the show in terms of like, creating anything yeah but i just like i need to do stand up because I, I didn't do it last night i was on, i went on a date <laughs> with my girlfriend i didn't do it and like tonight i i gotta do it nice that's awesome um so how do you do the show at verns every every tuesday every tuesday yeah. okay i have to remember that i gotta get these all written down into my calendar so yeah I can get i'm not necessarily them. there every tuesday we have four producers so okay. myself my girlfriend's a comedian and a producer as well um, and then uh, Molly Risa is the other. My girlfriend's Amy Edgar. That's her name. Okay. Uh, Molly Risa is one of the other comedians, and then the other one is Ben Cannon. And we rotate weeks because it's like less work that yeah. way, you know. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, so it's we do that every Tuesday, and it's like very much like the that those two shows, the Sunday show and that show, they're like the ground level of comedy in a way that the even the Monday show is a good show. Like yeah. Comedy Monday Night's a good show. They always have an audience there. The Wednesday show, Jupiter Comedy, is a good show. Always an audience there. The Thursday show is a good show. Always an audience there. But those two shows, they're not always good in the way that comedy shows that people start on are not always good. Okay. You know? Yeah. I got to get out and see more shows. I, I'm going to have to hook up. You're going to send me where I would going. say don't <laughs> stress yourself out on seeing those two shows. I mean, if you want to come out and you're curious about it, yeah, more power to you. But they're not. I, I think it would encourage me enough to write more. Yeah. Because I think is what it would do is that I've got a few... I've got a few basically headlines that I've got to build off of, and mm-hmm. I've got probably about, like I said, two, two and a half minutes written. And uh, But I would like to have 10 minutes written and try to dial it in a little bit tighter because it's, mm-hmm. it's my first. So it's it's really loose and shitty. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, it should be. If there's yeah. any other way, it's, it's a little weird, to be yeah. honest. I think most of my life, I, uh, you were talking about uh, what got you interested in comedy, and mm-hmm. mine was McLean and McLean and uh, Ray Stevens and um, Robin Williams, and like way back in the seventies when I was a kid. Those okay. are the things my parents listened to. Yeah, and so I they're storytellers. Like they they would tell 
just find something funny in the story that they were telling. And that's what I think mine is leaning towards is just, you know, uh, I don't want to say any of it, but we were took a plane ride to, to Nova Scotia and ended up moving seats to help a family and ended up sitting beside a guy that literally had spent 10 days stampeding. And oh yeah, <laughs> it was pouring out of every orifice of his body. <laughs> and so, and the whole time I sat beside him, that's what I wrote the joke was just about this fat, <laughs> obsessive um, gluttonous uh, gluttonous person sitting beside yeah. me so I'm glad he wasn't looking at my phone as I was writing it so. yeah yeah cool well we definitely have to check out some of the shows where's Vern's uh, it's on 8th it's on Stephen App uh, 8th and right. what I guess the, the address is 622 8th Avenue Southwest perfect yeah yeah. yeah. so we'll uh, we'll put some of those links up for your yeah, show for sure. when we do it and uh, I think we're already hour and a half in Hour and twenty two minutes. Is there anything else you want to share? No, no, it's all good. Cool. I'm sorry I had a couple brain farts. Oh, whatever happens. <laughs> and the next time I'll be much, much better, I promise. <laughs> My wife says either you gotta quit jujitsu or you gotta do it every damn day so you're not tired anymore. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So um yeah, uh, come check out their shows down at Vern or uh, what was the other one you just said? Uh the Juliet's Castle one. The the ones I would say go check out are uh Every Wednesday, Jupiter Comedy at uh, Oak Tree Tavern in Kensington. Yeah. Right on 10th Street there. And the other one would be uh, the Tea House. I can't remember. I think it's on 1st Street, Southeast downtown. Perfect. On Thursdays. So Austin, last name? Lonenberg. Lonenberg. Thank you. Sorry. Everybody, thank you for listening. Thank you for sharing. Uh, This will be going up on Thursday. Eric, you want to roll the outro? Hey, everyone. Thank you for listening. Thank you for sharing. This podcast is over.